Book Seven, Sections One through Three of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Politics by Aristotle, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Seven, Sections One through Three. Book Seven, One. He who would duly inquire about the best form of a state ought first to determine which is the most eligible life. While this remains uncertain, the best form of the state must also be uncertain. For, in the natural order of things, those may be expected to lead the best life who are governed in the best manner of which their circumstances admit. We ought, therefore, to ascertain, first of all, which is the most generally eligible life, and then whether the same life is or is not the best for the state and for individuals. Assuming that enough has already been said in discussions outside the school concerning the best life, we will now only repeat what is contained in them. Certainly no one will dispute the propriety of that partition of goods which separates them into three classes, viz., external goods, goods of the body, and goods of the soul or deny that the happy man must have all three. For no one would maintain that he is happy who has not in him a particle of courage, or temperance, or justice, or prudence, who is afraid of every insect which flutters past him, and who will commit any crime, however great, in order to gratify his lust of meat or drink, who will sacrifice his dearest friend for the sake of half a farthing, and is as feeble and false in mind as a child or a madman. These propositions are almost universally acknowledged as soon as they are uttered, but men differ about the degree or relative superiority of this or that good. Some think that a very moderate amount of virtue is enough, but set no limit to their desires of wealth, property, power, reputation, and the like. To whom we reply by an appeal to facts, which easily prove that mankind do not acquire or preserve virtue by the help of external goods, but external goods by the help of virtue, and that happiness, whether consisting in pleasure or virtue, or both, is more often happy with those who are most highly cultivated in their mind, and in their character, and have only a moderate share of external goods, than among those who possess external goods to a useful extent, but are deficient in higher qualities." and this is not only a matter of experience, but, if reflected upon, will easily appear to be in accordance with reason. For, whereas external goods have a limit, like any other instrument, and all things useful are of such a nature, that where there is too much of them they must either do harm, or at any rate, to be of no use, to their possessors, every good of the soul, the greater it is, is also of greater use, if the epithet useful as well as noble is appropriate to such subjects. No proof is required to show that the best state of one thing in relation to another corresponds in degree of excellence to the interval between the natures of which we say that these very states are states, so that, if the soul is more noble than our possessions or our bodies, both absolutely and in relation to us, it must be admitted that the best state of either has a similar ratio to the other. Again, it is for the sake of the soul that goods external and goods of the body are eligible at all, and all wise men ought to choose them for the sake of the soul, and not the soul for the sake of them. 
Let us acknowledge, then, that each one has just so much of happiness as he has of virtue and wisdom, and of virtuous and wise action. God is a witness to us of this truth, for he is happy and blessed, not by reason of any external good, but in himself and by reason of his own nature. And herein of necessity lies the difference between good fortune and happiness, for external goods come of themselves, and chance is the author of them, but no one is just or temperate by or through chance. In like manner, and by a similar train of argument, the happy state may be shown to be that which is best and which acts rightly, and rightly it cannot act without doing right actions, and neither individual nor state can do right actions without virtue and wisdom. Thus the courage, justice, and wisdom of a state have the same form and nature as the qualities which give the individual who possesses them the name of just, wise, or temperate. Thus much may suffice by way of preface, for I could not avoid touching upon these questions, neither could I go through all the arguments affecting them. These are the business of another science." Let us assume, then, that the best life, both for individuals and states, is the life of virtue, when virtue has external goods enough for the performance of good actions. If there are any who controvert our assertion, we will in this treatise pass them over, and consider their objections hereafter. 2. There remains to be discussed the question whether the happiness of the individual is the same as that of the state, or different. Here again there can be no doubt. No one denies that they are the same. For those who hold that the well-being of the individual consists in his wealth, also think that riches make the happiness of the whole state. And those who value most highly the life of a tyrant deem that city the happiest which rules over the greatest number. While they who approve an individual for his virtue say that the more virtuous a city is, the happier it is. Two points here present themselves for consideration. First, which is the more eligible life, that of a citizen who is a member of a state, or that of an alien who has no political ties, and again, too, which is the best form of constitution, or the best condition of a state, either on the supposition that political privileges are desirable for all, or for majority only. Since the good of the state, and not of the individual, is the proper subject of political thought and speculation, and we are engaged in a political discussion, while the first of these two points has a secondary interest for us, the latter will be the main subject of our inquiry. Now it is evident that the form of government is best in which every man, whoever he is, can act best and live happily. But even those who agree in thinking that the life of virtue is the most eligible raise a question, whether the life of business and politics is, or is not more eligible than one which is wholly independent of external goods. I mean, than a contemplative life, which by some is maintained to be the only one worthy of a philosopher. For these two lives, the life of a philosopher and the life of the statesman, appear to have been preferred by those who have been the most keen in the pursuit of virtue, both in our own and in other ages. Which is the better is a question of no small moment, for the wise man, like the wise state, will necessarily regulate his life according to the best end. There are some who think that while a despotic rule over others is the greatest injustice, to exercise a constitutional rule over them, even though not unjust, is a great impediment to a man's individual well-being. 
Others take an opposite view. They maintain that the true life of man is the practical and political, and that every virtue admits of being practiced, quite as much by statesmen and rulers as by private individuals. Others, again, are of opinion that arbitrary and tyrannical rule alone consists with happiness. Indeed, in some states the entire aim both of the laws and of the Constitution is to give men despotic power over their neighbors. And therefore, although in most cities the law may be said generally to be in a chaotic state, still, if they aim at anything, they aim at the maintenance of power. Thus in Lacedaemon and Crete the system of education and the greater part of the laws are framed with a view to war. And in all nations which are able to gratify their ambition military power is held in esteem, for example, among the Scythians and Persians and Thracians and Celts. In some nations there are even laws tending to stimulate the warlike virtues, as at Carthage, where we are told that men obtain the honor of wearing as many armlets as they have served in campaigns. There was once a law in Macedonia that he who had not killed an enemy should wear a halter, and among the Scythians no one who had not slain his man was allowed to drink out of the cup, which was handed round at a certain feast. Among the Iberians, a warlike nation, the number of enemies whom a man has slain is indicated by the number of obelisks which are fixed in the earth round his tomb, and there are numerous practices among other nations of a like kind some of them established by law, and others by custom. Yet, to a reflecting mind, it must appear very strange that the statesman should be always considering how he can dominate and tyrannize over others, whether they will or will not. How can that which is not even lawful be the business of the statesman or the legislator? Unlawful it certainly is to rule without regard to justice, for there may be might where there is no right." The other arts and sciences offer no parallel. A physician is not expected to persuade or coerce his patients, nor a pilot the passengers in his ship. Yet most men appear to think that the art of despotic government is statesmanship, and what men affirm to be unjust and inexpedient in their own case, they are not ashamed of practicing towards others. They demand just rule for themselves, but where other men are concerned they care nothing about it. Such behavior is irrational, unless the one party is, and the other is not, born to serve, in which case men have a right to command, not, indeed, all their fellows, but only those who are intended to be subjects, just as we ought not to hunt mankind, whether for food or sacrifice, but only the animals which may be hunted for food or sacrifice, this is to say, such wild animals as are edible." And surely there may be a city, happy in isolation, which we will assume to be well governed, for it is quite possible that a city thus isolated might be well administered, and have good laws. But such a city would not be constituted with any view to war or the conquest of enemies. All that sort of thing must be excluded. Hence we see very plainly that warlike pursuits, although generally to be deemed honorable, are not the supreme end of all things but only means. And the good lawgiver should inquire how states and races of men and communities may participate in a good life, and in the happiness which is attainable by them. His enactments will not always be the same, and where there are neighbors he will have to see what sort of studies should be practiced in relation to their several characters, or how the measures appropriate in relation to each are to be adopted. 
the end at which the best form of government should aim may be properly made a matter of future consideration three now let us address those who while they agree that the life of virtue is the most eligible differ about the manner of practicing it for some renounce political power and think that the life of the free man is different from the life of the statesman and the best of all but others think the life of the statesman best the argument of the latter is that he who does nothing cannot do well and that virtuous activity is identical with happiness to both we say you are partly right and partly wrong first class are right in affirming that the life of the freeman is better than the life of the despot for there is nothing grand or noble in having the use of a slave in so far as he is a slave or in issuing commands about necessary things but it is an error to suppose that every sort of rule is despotic like that of a master over slaves for there is as great a difference between the rule over freemen and the rule over slaves as there is between slavery by nature and freedom by nature about which i have said enough at the commencement of this treatise and it is equally a mistake to place inactivity above action for happiness is activity and the actions of the just and wise are the realization of much that is noble but perhaps some one on accepting these premises may still maintain that supreme power is the best of all things because the possessors of it are able to perform the greatest number of noble actions if so the man who is able to rule instead of giving up anything to his neighbor ought rather to take away his power and the father should make no account of his son nor the son of his father nor friend of friend they should not bestow a thought on one another in comparison with this higher object for the best is the most eligible and doing eligible and doing well is the best there might be some truth in such a view if we assume that robbers and plunderers attain the chief good but this can never be their hypothesis is false for the actions of a ruler cannot really be honorable unless he is as much superior to other men as a husband is to a wife or a father to his children or a master to his slaves and therefore he who violates the law can never recover by any success however great what he has already lost in departing from virtue for equals the honorable and the just consist in sharing alike as just and equal but that the unequals should be given to equals and the unlike to those who are like is contrary to nature and nothing which is contrary to nature is good if therefore there is any one superior in virtue and in the power of performing the best actions him we ought to follow and obey but he must have the capacity for action as well as virtue if we are right in our view and happiness is assumed to be virtuous activity the active life will be the best both for every city collectively and for individuals not that a life of action must necessarily have relation to others as some persons think nor are these ideas only to be regarded as practical which are pursued for the sake of practical results but much more the thoughts and contemplations which are independent and complete in themselves since virtuous activity and therefore a certain kind of action is an end and even in the case of external actions the directing mind is most truly said to act neither again is it necessary that states which are cut off from others and choose to live alone should be inactive for activity as well as other things may take place by sections 
there are many ways in which the sections of a state act upon one another. The same thing is equally true of every individual. If this were otherwise, God and the universe, who have no external actions over and above their own energies, would be far enough from perfection. Hence it is evident that the same life is best for each individual, and for states, and for mankind collectively. End of Book 7, Sections 1-3